How does biblical Christianity differ from man-made religion? Man-made religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. Of course, implied in this kind of thinking is the normally unspoken belief that if I perform for God, God owes me. If I perform adequately, God owes me. So how does biblical Christianity differ from man-made religion? What is the operating principle of the Gospel? It's not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. It's, I'm accepted by God through Christ and what He has done, therefore I obey. Now, inexplicably, theologians have gotten this messed up for millennial. The bottom line is, this is biblical Christianity. I am accepted by God through Christ. Period. We understand that. We understand that. Therefore, I obey. I obey because I am accepted. I obey because I love Him. I obey because I, I cannot not obey. <laughs> I can't believe what He's done. It's my great joy to obey. It's my great joy to live 1 John. It's my great joy to do Hebrews 11. Because He's an awesome God. And He saved me. I didn't deserve it. But He saved me. This is the difference. Tim Keller, some of you will know that name. He's a well-known preacher in the States. And he, has a, he had a young woman in the church say this to him. And I'm going to quote this young woman to you about the implications of the biblical gospel as opposed to a work-based system. She says this, If I am saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. This is biblical truth. This is a woman who understands the implications of radical grace. You know this, beloved. Your God is radical. He's a radical God. And He's, he's, he's showering His people with radical grace. He's shown radical love. How should we respond? With lukewarm Christianity? Does anybody think that's right? Radically, beloved. Radically. We get it. We get it when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow Me. We get that. This is not a problem for us. We understand it. It's what He did for us. This is, he's called us to discipleship. He says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Me. We get that. It's Christianity. And we don't do it from ought or should. We do it from desire. We do it from desire. Keller's young friend is right. She's right, but you know False religion and even pseudo-Christianity, they seek to put God. A man seeks to put God in his debt. You can't put God in your debt, beloved. God will never be in your debt. God will never be in your debt. We are saved by grace alone. Let's see if anybody can finish that. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We try to be biblically accurate Protestants in here. Okay? Biblically accurate. We know there are a lot of 
churches that no longer hold to this exclusively, but we do. We hold exclusively to the Bible. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I like what Tim Keller says about Jesus' invitation to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Keller says this, While the religious person is forced into obedience, motivated by fear of being rejected by God, listen to this, a Christian rushes into obedience, motivated by a desire to please and resemble the One who gave His life for us. Amen? I pray. I pray that's how you see your Christianity. I pray that that's a reality in your in, in your life. I pray you're not just checking religious boxes to impress God. You will never impress God that way. I pray that you're hopelessly in love with Him. And I pray that you've given yourself to Him. This is biblical Christianity. And my, my contention is that the radical grace of God requires a radical response. And this is what Jesus is talking to us about. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. This radical love of God, this radical grace of God that is, is shown to us in the incarnation of I Am and Him being nailed to a tree, it elicits, it demands, it demands a radical response. And the reason I wanted to talk about Colossians is I think this is part of the fuel of the life of a First John kind of life. You say, well, Jim... How can, I, how can I get up and obey every day? It's hard. It, it, my, my, my flesh fights me. How can I do it? We talked about some of it last week. Remember, we talked about the, the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. How she just loved Christ. She really meditated deeply on the fact that all her sin was gone. And this was an astonishing thing to her. And she just, she, she just worshipped Him with, with... Yeah, she had no reserve. She poured it all out. We looked, at that, we looked at Mary in Mark chapter 14 as she broke the vial and poured the, the vial on Jesus. Worship fuels the life, the first John kind of life. And tonight I want to look at the fact that our focus, our focus should also fuel, should also fuel the first John kind of life. Tim Keller's friend intuitively deduces the reality of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. You guys know the famous text. Don't you know, Paul says, that you are not what? Your own. If you belong to Christ, you're not your own anymore. You belong to Him. You are not your own. It's a great fallacy in the modern church. People think they can have Jesus and still live like any, any, any way they want to. Like they can still be... You know, Lord of their own life. They can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You can't do that, beloved. That's not biblical Christianity. He's Savior and Lord, or He's nothing. You can't separate, you can't separate God like that. Paul says, don't you know? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore what? Does anybody know? Therefore what? Pardon me? Glorify God. Very good. Close. Glorify God! Glorify God. So let me just stop and ask you. Are you glorifying God in your life? Are you glorifying God in your life? Have you come to the conclusion you are not your own? Beloved, this really kind of divides off pseudo-Christianity from the biblical kind of Christianity. Have you come to the conclusion you are not your own? You are His. 
You know, I've said it many, many times. Even if you don't love Him, even if you don't humble yourself before Him, even if you never acknowledge Him as your Lord and Savior, you're His. You know why? He made you. You are His intellectual property. But beloved, as Bible-believing Christians, we know Him personally and intimately. Let me just say, some of you might not be living the way you're living if you really understood the Gospel of grace like this woman understands it. Tim Keller's young friend. She's right. If we're saved by sheer grace, there's nothing God cannot ask of us. And there's nothing God cannot ask of us that we're not willing to give. We're willing. We are willing to serve Him. He is our Lord. It's a legitimate call. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It's a legitimate, it's a legitimate call of Christ. If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself. Take up His cross and follow Me. I say it all the time. Jesus has never called anyone to church membership. Somehow, in the modern church, it's like we think, well, my name's on the roll. So what? You're not going to find that in the Bible anywhere. God's not impressed that your name is on a roll. God's not impressed that you're a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal or yada, yada, yada. God doesn't care. God could care less. Are you in relationship with Him? Have you come to understand that you're not your own? You belong to Him. He is your God. And are you living it out? This is Christianity, beloved. This is Christianity. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in mere Christianity. He says, God says, give, no, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want what? You! I've not come to torment your natural self, God says, but to kill it. Half measures are no good. We must come to Christ completely or we don't come to Christ. Always loved how C.S. Lewis said that. So I, I hope you understand there's no negotiation here. You don't get to negotiate terms by which you come to Jesus. It's His terms or no terms. <laughs> we, we, don't get to set, um, we don't get to set those kinds of parameters. We either come on His parameters or His, His terms or we don't come at all. Jesus simply says, follow Me. That's it. Follow Me. That's Christianity. Follow Me. <clears throat> Follow me. Radical grace elicits a radical response from the true believer. It simply does. It's what we see on the pages of Scripture. The religious man who's merely playing church with God, when he hears talk like this, when he hears talk about being completely abandoned, he recoils. He is not comfortable with that concept. Much of modern Christianity is not comfortable with the concept of complete abandonment. Although this is what the New Testament is clearly talking about. Many of you have heard me say this before. Salvation is discipleship and discipleship is salvation. Biblically speaking. Now I know men, men have made up a lot of things. But if we're going to talk about it in biblical terms, salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. But to the merely religious man, when, he, when they hear about surrendering wholly and completely to Christ, they hear loss. 
Let me ask you, what do you hear when you hear me challenge you to wholly and completely surrender yourself to God? Do you hear loss? Do you hear constraint? Do you hear some kind of grinding obligation? Or do you hear that God has invited you into ultimate freedom to walk with the living God in consummate joy, consummate fulfillment, to really find out who you are in God, who He created you to be, that's what I hear. I think the Lord wants us to hear these things. We're not to recoil from this. We're supposed to run to this. Run to abandonment. Not be afraid of God. That He's going to ask more than I can give. He's going to give you all, he need, all you need. He'll give you all you need to follow Him. To follow Him completely and utterly. He'll provide for everything He calls you to do. It's, the, it's Peter in the boat. It's a desire. God never told Peter to get out of the boat. Why did Peter get out of the boat? Who started that conversation? Peter wanted to get out of the boat. Let me ask you, do you want to get out of the boat? Do you want to abandon yourself to God like I pray, that, I pray that's where you are with the Lord. I pray that that's where you are. It's, it's a desire to walk with Christ. It doesn't matter how much sense it makes. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, makes, it, it doesn't matter if it makes no sense. It made no sense for Peter to get out of the boat. But he got out of the boat. And he walked on the water. It was impossible. Of course it was impossible. But in Christ, He did it. So when the true believer hears talk of a radical life of radical faith, he gets it. It's an invitation into adventure and intimacy with God. And I know it's hard. I've been there. And I'm still there on some issues. Sometimes it's hard. But I want to encourage you, press forward. Push the envelope. Go deeper. Consciously. Make it an effort to go deeper with Christ. On a daily basis, go deeper. You win. You win if you go deeper with the Lord. So tonight I want us to just spend a few more minutes. I want to talk about a little bit from Colossians chapter 3 here and to, to buttress what God has said to us in, in our look at First John. Um, how can we really live lives like this? How can we live a First John kind of life? Just a little context here in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has made his defense of the biblical gospel. Some of you who are familiar with the book will know that he is refuting the false teachers who have been teaching that you, need, you have to have Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus legalism. Jesus plus mysticism. Jesus plus asceticism. If you know the book of Colossians, you understand that Paul is refuting this concept that you need Jesus plus anything else. We, we've talked about this a lot. In fact, anytime you hear that you need Jesus plus some religious activity, you know that that's false. That's just simply false. That's biblically false. Not only is it false, it's a demonic. Who is the father of lies? Satan is the father of lies. So if someone tells you you, you, you need Jesus, but you need this too, you know you're hearing a lie. And you know where it's coming from. Paul has been clear in the first two chapters of Colossians. Jesus is all you need. Don't you dare add religion to Him. 
So study Colossians if you haven't. Don't you dare add your religion to Him. Don't you dare insult God by adding religion to Him. And Paul does what he always does. In Colossians 3, he turns the corner. He's told you for two chapters, he said, here's the truth. This is what Paul always does. Here's the truth. And then in the last few chapters, he says, this is what you need to do with the truth. Isn't that the way the Bible always is? The Bible gives you truth, and then it says this is how to live the truth. This is what you need to do with the truth. We understand what we study in the book of James. God is unambiguous. Those who merely hear the Word but never do the Word, they're what? They're deluded according to God. These are not my words. These are the words of God. They are deluded. Those who merely talk about the Word but never do it, their faith is, God says, dead and useless. God is quite clear. Biblical Christianity has never been academic, theoretical, or abstract. It's get out of the boat and never look back. Go with God. <laughs> Jesus said, my sheep hear me. They know me. They follow me. So Paul has defended the simplicity and purity of the biblical gospel. And then he says this, if then you have been raised up with Christ, if it's real with you, that's what he's saying, if it's real, if it's real with you, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. How do we do First John? Just like this. Just like this. Just like this. We seek the things Above. We seek the things above. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this text in the message. He says, if you're serious about the new life with Christ, act like it. I love this. He says, seek things from God's perspective. Seek the, the perspective of God. The Christian's worldview is dominated by his heaven view. The Christian's worldview is dominated by his view of Christ. I can't hardly see anything else because there he is. My God, my Creator, my Redeemer, my crucified Redeemer. There he is. He takes up so much bandwidth. I can't hardly see anything else. He's so awesome. He's so glorious. He's loved me so much. I can't see anything else. I barely can see anything else. <laughs> I think this is the confession of many born-again believers. The Holy Spirit says, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. It makes me think of that great text, 2 Corinthians 4.18. I think we talked about it in the last few weeks. If we look, um, we, we uh, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our Jesus view dominates everything else. Our view of heaven dominates everything else. Our view of the new earth dominates everything else. Beloved, is that a reality in your life? I find that most Christians, so I'm just going to exhort you tonight, I find most Christians spend very, very, very little time contemplating the beauty of heaven and the inheritance they have in Christ. I think if we spent more time contemplating deeply these things, meditating deeply on these things, 
I think it would change much of our lives. Live from God's perspective. Live from God's perspective. Again, Tim Keller says, the Christian rushes into obedience, motivated by a desire to please and resemble the One who gave His life for us. Jesus is our true north. He is our direction. He is our bearing. He is our orientation. I know, of course, a lot of you guys are here for the first time. And I know the people that, that have been in, in ICM for a while, they get tired of me talking about Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 11 is a perfect commentary on Colossians 3. You guys know that the, the men and women of Hebrews 11, they live these radical lives of radical faith. And you remember what they were pointing at, right? You remember. It says it three times in Hebrews 11. They'd set their mind on, on the things above. Hebrews 11.10, they were looking for the city of God. Hebrews 11.13, they confessed they were strangers and exiles upon the earth. Hebrews 11.16, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They were expending their lives in the pursuit of things above. Let me ask you, beloved, is this the aroma and signature of your life? One of my favorite analogies about the Christian life is is the Olympic athlete. You know, it's no accident that an Olympic athlete uh, ascends the platform to receive a medal. It's not an accident, is it? That's what he's been pointing at all his life. That's been his life. That's been all of his life almost. Is to be ready for the Olympics. And I think of, I think of a, that, that, that Olympic athlete, and he, you have to use words like focused and disciplined and tireless and driven and motivated and hardworking, determined, single-minded, resolute, and unwavering. I think the analogy is perfect. I think this is what God's calling us to. This kind of Christianity. All we need to do is read 1 John. All we need to do is study Hebrews 11. Focused, driven, resolute in the pursuit of the things above. Single-minded in setting our minds on the things above. One would think that a blood-bought, born-again Christian would be seeking the things above at least as earnestly as a man seeking a perishable medal. Yes? Am I wrong or am I right about that? I think I'm right about that. It seems like we would be pursuing the things of, of God and the, and the things of heaven at least as to, 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 to the degree that this guy is or this woman, this Olympic medalist, and you guys know how Hebrews 11 ends. It pours over into Hebrews chapter 12 and God says, hey, that's how I want you to live. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the things of... I want you to, to, to seek the things above. I want you to look at the things of heaven. That's how I want you to live. And I want you to come after Me. I want you to come after Me. You guys remember the great text, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. God says, lay aside every encumbrance. Okay, what's encumbering you from abandoning yourself to Christ tonight? What's encumbering you? I want you to think about it. God says, abandon every encumbrance. Every encumbrance. Get rid of it. And then He says, and the sin that so easily entangles us. What sin is dragging you down spiritually? What sin is keeping you from giving yourself wholly over to abandon Christ Jesus in your life? God continues, Set aside the encumbrances and the sin. 
And he says, run with endurance the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Again, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is great. Peterson says, strip down and start running and don't ever quit. That's the sermon. That's the sermon tonight. I love his, I love his uh, paraphrase. I love his paraphrase. Christianity properly understood is an all-consuming venture. It's never half-hearted. We know, we know how God feels about lukewarm Christianity. So I think the race analogy is perfect. This is not a jog. <laughs> We're not supposed to coast. We're not supposed to meander. Paul says, I run to win. Let me ask you, beloved, are you running the Christian race to win? It's the call of God. In Philippians 3.20, God tells us, our citizenship is in heaven. I love that. It's not our citizenship will be in heaven. Our Our citizenship is. You know it's present tense. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're supposed to be living that reality. One theologian said it like this, our heavenly citizenship should be on display in our earthly lives. The transition that Paul makes here uh, between chapter 2 and and, and chapter 3 where he starts making application, it reminded me so much, and I I know you guys are probably familiar with this text. You remember in Romans, uh, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul just writes the most beautiful theology you can imagine. And then he just bursts out into praise and doxology as he gets to the end of, of Romans 11. And then he says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you therefore, brethren, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The King James Version says it like this, this is your reasonable service. Give yourself away. It's your reasonable service. This is not, this shouldn't be an unusual thing in the body of Christ. This is how it works. Give yourself away. This is your reasonable service to the One who has created and redeemed you. Again, I'm gonna, I have to quote Eugene Peterson. I, I love his message paraphrase. He says, take your everyday, listen to this, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and give it to God. Don't you love that? You know, beloved, you can worship God in the, in the simple things of life, the average things of life. In fact, you should be worshiping God and how you love your spouse how you take care of your kids, how you do your job, how you serve the church, you know, how you fix the car, how you clean the toilet, whatever. Do it as unto the Lord, praising God that you have the ability to do the deed that you are doing. Look at verses 3 and 4 quickly. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We are dead to the world in one sense. I like the way uh, Charles Spurgeon said it, that 19th century preacher. He said, the Christian is spoiled for the world. We understand. We're aliens. We're exiles. We are uh, pilgrims. We are strangers. Look what he says there in verse 3. He says, uh, the Holy Spirit says, our life is hidden in Christ. Verse 4, he says, our life, uh, or pardon me, Christ is our life. Let me ask you, is that true? Is that true of you? I like how John MacArthur says it. He says, he says, we find, the Christian finds that his life is all tangled up with God. Don't you love that imagery? Our life is all tangled up with God. We really can't do anything without Him. Nor do we want to do anything without Him. The radical love and grace of God has brought us into radical intimacy. As 2 Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature. We have been brought into the family. We are the adopted children of God. This is breathtaking to me. I, how can we live this small, beloved? How can we live this small? Christianity cannot be some little religious corner of our life. It is our life. According to what God's Word says, Christ, who is our life. He is our life. So what does the Holy Spirit mean here when it says that we are hidden with Christ? I think two things. I'll say it very quickly. One, that we are eternally secure in Christ. No one or no thing can separate us from the love of God. We are safe. We are eternally safe in Him. But I think another thing it means is that we are uh, our God-begotten, our born-again nature uh, is, is now largely veiled. Unbelievers know we're weird, but they don't know how weird we are. We are infinitely weird. We are, as God says in His Word, six times I think in the, in the King James, maybe twelve, I don't remember now. We are a peculiar people. We belong to God. Nobody else does. I know that many in the world like to profess a love for God, but we know what God says in Romans chapter 3. No man loves nor seeks God. But God seeks a people for Himself. This is the Gospel. And God has come to redeem a people for Himself. How can we live it small, beloved? How can we do it? We've not understood it. If we're living in, in some small, cautious, careful, religious, habitual, legalistic kind of way, we've not yet really understood the Gospel. So in closing, I know some of you are happy. In closing, I occasionally get asked a good question. Why, Jim, why don't, why don't you give a formal invitation to pe for people to come to Christ at the end of the service after you finish preaching? You know, many times in the West, I don't know what you're used to, but I know in the States, in the culture I grew up in, in the region I grew up in, after the, the gospel would be preached, you know, the preacher would start trying to emotionally manipulate people to come up and accept Christ, right? Some kind of psychological or emotional manipulation. I don't do that. Why? 
you know, I'm not saying that all invitations are wrong, and, and, and every, you know, it's not always wrong to give an invitation. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't get involved in that because I believe the preached Word of God is God's invitation. I don't have to make an invitation to you. You've already been invited. You're here. He's brought you here. He's a sovereign God. You're not here by accident. He's brought you here. He's brought you here to hear His Word. That's His invitation. Repent and believe, beloved. So I'm kind of halfway given an, an invitation tonight. Okay? <laughs> Repent and believe. Run to Christ. This is the day of grace. Run to Christ. His wrath is being revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We understand we've been talking about this in men's Bible study. This is the, the dispensation or the season of grace. Run! Run to Christ, beloved. I've seen invitations abused many, many times, and I don't want to get involved with that. I trust the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's His job. To convict you in your heart and to draw you to Jesus. So I will close with this. This invitation. It's just the words of Jesus. I'll just close with this. And it's a, it's a call to all. And you guessed it. It's a radical call for a radical response to the radical grace and radical love of God. Jesus says, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who shall save it. And I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know, beloved? Do you not know you are not your own? Do you not know? Well, if you came here not knowing it, you know it now. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, go out in the world and do your job. Glorify Christ. Glorify Christ. Amen. As we talked about,